Welcome to We Got Goals, a podcast by asweatlife.com. I'm Kristen Guile, and I'm the Chief Content Officer of A Sweat Life. Before I moved to Chicago in 2011, my concept of fitness was split into two dichotomies, sports, which I had retired from upon graduating high school, and the elliptical at my university's tiny carpeted gym, that is to say, working out to stay skinny. But my arrival in Chicago gave me what happiness researcher Gretchen Rubin calls the fresh start effect, the chance to rebuild my relationship with fitness anew. And unbeknownst to me, I moved to this major metropolis right as two major fitness trends were becoming mainstream, running and boutique group fitness classes. Running, I reasoned, would be a good way for me to exercise because it was largely free and I lived a mile from the lakefront, which was a novelty to me at the time. And after a couple of years, I moved from downtown to Lincoln Park, right as Nike opened a Nike training club studio above their Armitage shop and began offering free, yes, free, classes every single day of the week. Real ones, you guys remember this. Quickly, fitness became a landmark in the history of Kristen. It was through running and group fitness that I met many of my best friends, my boyfriend, and Gina, who had just started a fitness-focused blog as a fun side project that is now both of our full-time jobs. And now, it's pretty safe to assume that if you were to ask a random Instagram acquaintance what they knew about me, they'd mention fitness in some capacity, second only to my dog, Phoebe. Fitness has been such a significant part of my life, and I was really excited when Gina suggested that we do the History of Fitness as our second deep dive series on the podcast this year. My own perspective of the fitness industry runs both narrow and deep. I know a ton about the fitness industry's most important verticals as they exist today, but before the mid-90s, I didn't have a great grasp on how fitness, sports, and recreations have evolved over time. To be honest, I wasn't even totally sure why Jane Fonda was so important to fitness until taking on this project. At times, I sort of feel like Anne Hathaway in The Devil Wears Prada. You know, that scene where Meryl slash Miranda absolutely tears Hathaway's character Andy apart for not understanding the significance of Andy wearing a cerulean sweater. And worse, for not respecting the hundreds of people in the years of fashion history that brought her cerulean sweater to the shelves. I don't want to be Andy for many reasons, so I'm taking y'all along with me as I dive into the history of fitness. We're starting at the very beginning, like literally going all the way back to ancient Greece and Renaissance era Italy. In today's episode, you'll meet Bill Hayes, the author of Sweat, A History of Exercise. His book is part history, part memoir, and it traces the different origins of exercise as they evolve. He flips between analyzing the past and memorializing the future, so you're left with a better context for the cultural and scientific history of exercise and how it's affected our view of exercise today. Bill, as you'll hear in this interview, is a complete delight, and I'm so excited to share this interview with y'all. And now, on to today's interview. Welcome to We Got Goals, a podcast by asweatlife.com. I'm Kristen Guile. I'm the Chief Content Officer of A Sweat Life, and today we are kicking off, actually, our deep dive into this month's topic, and that is the history of fitness. So to start things off today, we have Bill Hayes, who is the author of Sweat, A History of Exercise, and it's a narrative nonfiction look at exercise from 
way, way back in the day to present. Uh, and Bill is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship in nonfiction, as well as a frequent contributor to the New York Times, author of seven books, and a photographer. Bill, welcome to our podcast today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. We're so excited to have you. Uh, it seems like divine timing that the coming out of your book coincides with us deciding to do this little foray into the history of exercise. So couldn't have picked a more perfect person to start this series off with. And, you know, to get to know you a little better, I'd love to hear more about your origin story, your personal history with exercise, and sort of how that led you to this topic that your book covers. Well, I have always loved to exercise and work out, swim. You know, my forms of exercise, I think, have changed over the years. So the book itself is both a history of exercise going back two millennia um, through the Middle Ages and Renaissance, 19th century up to the present day. But it also functions a little bit as um, my own history of exercise because I weave into the book my own experiences and memories uh, going back to my boyhood in Spokane, Washington, where I was raised by a West Point cadet and I was the only son in the family and uh, lots of athletics and exercise and sporting events and that sort of thing. So um, with this book, the origin story of it uh, begins appropriately enough in a gym. It was about 10 years ago. This book has been um, probably the longest time in the making of any book I've done. Yeah. Um, but I was in the gym about 10 years ago. I mounted a Stairmaster, which has always been my old school cardio machine of choice. Yeah, they're having a comeback lately, I think. People love them. I swear it's it's a great cardio exercise. You start to hate it when you're halfway through it. <laughs> but you, you sort of can't stop because the stairs just keep going. Anyway, I punched in my program. I remember it was Fat Burner. 25 great minutes. Name. <laughs> 25 minutes, put my towel down, my water. For some reason, I paused and I looked out at the gym floor. All these people, men and women, different ages lifting weights, uh, doing bench presses, pull-ups, chin-ups, sit-ups, yoga, bozu balls. And I just thought suddenly, how did we all end up here? <laughs> how yeah. did we all end up here? <laughs> and if I were to trace a line backward in time, where would I land? So I sat there for a moment or stood there for a moment and got my towel and water and hopped off and I went to the library really just thinking I'd find a book that would answer that question, a mm -hmm. book on the history of exercise. And lo and behold, I didn't. So yes, a kind of light bulb went on, like, that's odd. That could be a really interesting mm -hmm. topic. Um, but it took me a couple of years for me to sort of develop the idea and figure out how I wanted to structure the book. Um, mm -hmm. And I've worked on it off and on for the past 10 years. Yeah. Really happy to have it out. I bet. I'm sure it feels like it's been a long time, long yeah. time coming. And, and through your research, you sort of discovered this, this hero of, of your story, Mercuriale, um, yes. who, you know, I consider myself pretty versed in modern fitness. You know, I, I understand the trends from the last 50 years or so. And mm -hmm. this was clearly someone way before the time that I had studied and I had never heard his name before, didn't know anything about him. And I'm assuming a lot of your readers will come to the book with that same perspective. So who is this guy and why do we care about him? Yeah. Well, please let me make you feel better because I knew <laughs> nothing about him either. 
Um, and I should say really quickly, my first three books were structured kind of similarly to Sweat mm -hmm. and interweaving of history, medical history or scientific history with personal narrative. Um, so I kind of had that hybrid model in mind. I, um, I went to a very good library here in New York and libraries and archives play as much of a role in my book as gyms do. <laughs> it, it's like, honestly, it's equal the yeah. amount that you talk about them and like the the tone of reverence that you use talking about both of them. Yeah. I just thought it'd be fun for the reader to go along on the ride with me as I tried to find my way into these archives and libraries mm -hmm. around the world, whether in India or Italy or Paris or, or London. Um, so I went to a, um, a wonderful library here in New York City, the New York Academy of Medicine. Uh, they have a rare books room. And I went in and um, reserved books by kind of um, well-known figures in the history of medicine, Hippocrates, Galen, some 19th century writers, and the very nice librarian brought them to me. And then she said, well, surely you've heard of Girolamo Mercuriale. <laughs> and I oh. had to look up to her and say, ah, no, I haven't. And she said, hold on, wait here a moment. And she went back to the storage room came back wearing white gloves and holding a pristine first edition of a 1569 book called De Arte Gymnastica by Girolamo Mercuriale. And um, I put on white gloves, she asked me to as well, because it's a very rare book, um, though it was in perfect condition. I opened it up and happened to open up the book to one of several illustrations, an illustration of two pairs of men wrestling. Mm -hmm. And that in itself was captivating. It was just such a bold, captivating illustration. Mm -hmm. But then, Kristen, I turned the page and saw that the entire book was written in medieval Latin. How dare they? <laughs> and it was about 400 pages long. So I paged through it, and I thought I could re recognize the Latin word for exercise. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so I thought, okay, there's <laughs> something here. And I want to know what he wrote about and it took me quite a while to track down an English translation, which I did. And then I tracked down the English translator in London. And that sort of set me off on this journey to retrace Mercuriali's footsteps, how he came to write this book, which is considered the first comprehensive book on exercise, mm -hmm. looking at every form of exercise known at that time, mm -hmm. um, and, um, and sort of retracing his life story as well. He had an mm -hmm. interesting life. Mercuriali's book um, looks at every form of exercise known then. Uh, walking, running, swimming, boxing, wrestling, dancing. Um, of course, it didn't include forms of exercise that we know, like the bicycle or bicycling, because the bicycle wasn't invented until the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, and some forms of what he called exercise that, <laughs> don't exactly fit into that category for us, like laughing, yeah, crying, yeah, and uh, for him, it was any form of movement of the human body, mm -hmm. and he was looking at it purely from a physician's perspective. Okay, so he was a physician, those were his bona fides, how he knew the muscles as well as they knew in Renaissance mm -hmm. Italy at the time that he was writing this. Did people around him? care? Did they understand the significance? I, I understand his book was reprinted several times, but what was kind of the response of his peers? Well, it definitely was not a culture of exercise and fitness. Um, mm -hmm. And it was expressly Mercuriali's aim 
to try to revive the ancient Greek arts of exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, In his position in Rome, he was personal physician to a very prominent and wealthy uh, cardinal, Cardinal Alessandro Farnese. In fact, he lived in the Farnese household. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, Farnese was fairly young and healthy. And my impression is that Mercuriali, as his personal physician, didn't have a lot he had to do. So he had time to research topics that interested him. Mm-hmm. And he also had access to the Vatican Library and the Farnese fi- Family Library. And he began um, translating, deciphering, and reading ancient Greek and Roman texts on the body, health, medicine, and exercise. Mm-hmm. And um, including, you know, his one of his sort of forebears, um, Hippocrates, who wrote about exercise in the 5th century BC. Um, and Galen in the second century. Um, so he was really looking back to the thinkers, philosophers, and physicians of antiquity. And I think also just trying to understand how there was this whole culture of athletics and exercise epitomized really by the Olympic Games and those competitions that had vanished. Mm-hmm. It really had vanished. He saw remnants of it in Rome where he lived. Um, There were, and you can still see them today, bath complexes and gymnasium complexes, big, beautiful spaces, but they had fallen into ruins. And that whole culture of athletics and exercise had sort of vanished. And it was his aim and dream to bring it all back to life. Mm -hmm. Um, Can't say he actually did that in the 1560s and 70s. Um, but um, I'm thankful that he pulled together all that material. Um, and it has a very distinctive point of view. So it was very, it was really fun to read. Yeah. I, I had to laugh during one of your chapters about uh, how no one exercises in Italy. And I, you know, you, you mentioned seeing like one probably expat jogging miserably through the streets of Rome. And I, I just, deeply identified with that character in your book as as someone who has tried to find a hotel gym in Europe before and been looked at like I was a complete psychopath. Um, But that did sort of bring up an interesting thought experiment because you were, you had also talked in that chapter with Alice Waters, who was a a notable chef, and she seemed completely turned off by the idea of exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm going to, I'm going to quote you from your own book here. You said, I was intrigued and stimulated by Alice's views, giving up the gym, slowing down, not speeding up, going outside, getting the body moving, whatever the weather, not staying in and dancing more, a slow burn, not a competitive one. And it seemed to me the epitome of going local, local being your own body, viewing the body as the ultimate sustainable resource. So to sort of distill that down, you know, she's more in this, the camp of make being active your, your lifestyle. Right. Um, whereas exercise sort of refers to work, um, right. which, you know, I can relate to because a lot of the things I do for exercise right now, you know, swimming, playing tennis, like those are fun for me. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think you can find joy and pleasure in, you know, what Alice would probably refer to as exercise. So where do you stand on that? How do those intersect for you? It was such a great conversation because she was really challenging a lot of what I was thinking about. Um, I remember her saying that gyms are the fast food of exercise. <laughs> and her, of course, her whole philosophy of food is, is you know, farm to table, very organic, um, sort of 
lack of pretentiousness or self-consciousness about it. And she was surprised when I told her that gyms were actually in virtually every town in the Greek empire, that this was not gyms and exercising and fitness was not purely a modern phenomenon, which a lot mm-hmm. of people do think that suddenly people started exercising in the 20th century. But no, exercise goes back at least to the 5th century BC. But I think her point was just that so many people dislike exercise because they think of it as work and Mm -hmm. um, not as pleasure. And um, for her, she just works exercise or moving her body into her daily life. She starts every day with a walk, which is a great form of exercise, as Hippocrates himself said. And then throughout her day at her restaurant, you know, going up and down the stairs, carrying boxes of produce, uh, sweeping the porch, um, just moving. And um, I think there's a lot of beauty in that sort of concept. Um, It's true. You don't have to join a gym to exercise. You don't have to buy equipment even. Um, I try to tell people to think of exercise as synonymous with movement, whatever kind of movement. It is. It's all good. Your body will thank you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, if you're finding you don't have enough time to set aside for exercise, maybe get off the bus two stops early and walk the rest of the way home or the subway two or three stops early and walk the rest of the way home. Mm -hmm. And um, but do it with the intention of this is this is my exercise for the day, not just my way to get home. I think it's a lot about how you see it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And when we go back to, you know, those ancient 5th century BC Greeks who were, you know, exercising, what was their motivation? I know some of it was social, some of it was to stay in good health, some of it was military related. Can you sort of dive into what what sparked movement there? Not to be funny. A really quick sort of background. I mean, one could argue that exercise has its roots in military training going back to the 10th century BC or much further before. Um, But that's where we first see records of it. Um, Fitness training just to prepare for hand-to-hand combat. Mm -hmm. And then there is the founding of the Olympic Games in the 5th century BC, which sort of kicks off this idealization of the body, the worship of the body, and interest in athletic competition, Mm -hmm. which trickled down to ordinary citizens. Um, Ordinary, that's not quite the right way to put it, because really only men and boys were allowed into gymnasiums, and women were not encouraged or permitted to exercise in the same way as men. Um, but really, you know, people say, when did exercise as we know it today, the exercise you saw on that gym floor when you're on the Stairmaster, when did that really begin? I I have to give credit to Hippocrates, the father of medicine. It was he who wrote two separate treatises on healthful living, um, writing about exercise, but also diet, bathing, matters of hygiene. And his advice was really amazingly sensible. Um, Mm -hmm. preaching moderation, um, preaching, mixing it up. (laughs) If you get bored with one form of exercise, try another Mm -hmm. and working it into your daily life. Mm -hmm. And for Hippocrates, Plato, Aristotle, Galen, I think they intuitively understood that exercise was good for body, mind, and soul. 
They did not, however, and we really should make this clear, they did not have an accurate understanding of how the human body actually works. The humors. Is that where we're going? (laughs) Yeah, that's where we're going. The four humors. For something like 14 centuries, it was widely believed that the human body was composed of four humors. Two of them were completely fantastical, and they had to be kept in balance. And if one of the humors or two was out of balance, you're in a state of distemper. And this is what led to such primitive treatments as bloodletting and purging and things like that. Now, part of the reason they didn't know um, how the human body really works is that dissection of cadavers was forbidden. So they were really kind of guessing. And even so, had an intuitive understanding that exercise was good for you. Um, It was Hippocrates who said, "Eating, eating alone will not keep a man well. He must also take exercise. For food and exercise, while possessing opposite qualities, yet work together to produce health. Which is pretty... Sounds familiar. Pretty sensible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And really that understanding of the human body didn't change until the 17th century with William Harvey's discovery, it's not the wrong word to use, discovery of the circulation of the blood by the beat of the heart. That's, you know, part of the scientific revolution, the enlightenment. Suddenly there's a whole new uh, awareness and understanding of how the body works and why exercise would be beneficial. Mm -hmm. Got it. That's a deep history. Um, You briefly mentioned women and, you know, a lot of our audience is is female. Uh Um, I'd love to take a quick detour into when women were allowed in those you know, exercise spaces. I know Sparta is the immediate example that comes to mind, but you you also dive into this, I think, a mural or mosaic of women working out that you had mm-hmm. seen on your travels that made an impression. So let's talk a little bit more about women's place or lack thereof in all of yeah. this. Yeah, one of the unusual places was Sparta which was really a military state. And it was expected that the women, alongside the men, women and girls, would exercise, would be trained. Again, this was really in preparation for war, Um, but that was really an exception. And while it's also true that Plato encouraged women to exercise, that was more of an ideal. It Mm. didn't really happen (laughs) Um, um, in a large scale way until much later until 19th century, really. Mm -hmm. And there was a confluence of events that came together, um, the impact of the Industrial Revolution. There was a global concern that people moving, to put it simplistically, from farm to factory had become too sedentary. And so there was a real movement to encourage people to move, Mm -hmm. to get exercise. Um, And by this time, there was a better understanding of how the body works, Um, There's also very importantly the rise of the women's rights movements and the suffragette movement that women were allowed and encouraged to exercise really for the first time. And then there are things that um, come up that are just fascinating in the history of exercise, like the invention of the bicycle. I, you know, it's something we take for granted in all of our Most towns in America, you have city bike or these bike programs, more bicyclists than ever before. Um, Some people think that Leonardo da Vinci was the first to invent a bicycle, which turns out to be completely untrue. 
Um, the bicycle didn't begin its long journey to what it is today. In the early 1800s, mm-hmm. um, it was a very primitive machine with no pedals. You sort of scooted along with your feet. Like what they give toddlers to learn yeah, how to balance. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it was meant to be a sort of an alternative to horses. Mm-hmm. There'd been this terrible drought. There weren't enough horses. So it was purely for transportation, um, but not the best form of transportation. Then they kind of went off in wild directions with bicycles that had one gigantic front wheel and a very mm-hmm. small back wheel. I'm mm-hmm. not sure why exactly they thought that was a good idea. I don't even know how they got up on the seats. I've always wondered. They must have yeah. had ladders set up. Yeah, they look very unsafe. So speaking of unsafe, finally, what was called the safety bicycle was invented in the 1890s. And it really closely resembles the bicycles we ride today. Mm-hmm. And then someone, and I sure hope it was a woman, um, had the brilliant idea <laughs> to remove the horizontal bar going from seat to handlebars mm-hmm. to make it easier for women in their dresses and skirts to mount a bicycle and ride. Mm-hmm. And one of my very favorite quotes in the whole book is from the great women's rights activist, Susan B. Anthony, suffragette, um, who said in 1896, the bicycle has done more for the emancipation of women than anything else in the world. It gives women a feeling of freedom and self-reliance. I stand and rejoice every time I see a woman ride by on a wheel. The picture of free, untrammeled womanhood. I loved that part too. As soon as you said one of your favorite quotes, I was like, I know where this is going. I liked that too. I love it. I mean, it became, you know, earlier the bicycle was considered sort of a toy or a novelty mm-hmm. for men and boys, mm-hmm. but that all changed in the 1890s. And um, bicycles could be used for transportation, but also for recreation and exercise. Mm-hmm. And around that time, there were other women coming forward um, to advocate for exercise for women, as well as for children. And that was a real change. Mm-hmm. You know, you you say you're talking about how the bicycle has been around, been invented since the 19th century. And, you know, over this history of, of fitness and exercise, we have seen so many trends come and go and come back again, you know, yeah. jazzercise and, and Taibo. But at the same time, a lot of those you tried a lot of different exercise trends in your book too, which you document um, and is super fun to read. Um, (laughs) But what have you seen throughout history and throughout your research that makes a workout like swimming or biking or running the most evergreen, you know, not subject to the trends and the whims of what popular culture deems exciting and cool to do? I mean, I think part of it is just you don't need anything except your own body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I write about running and how really it requires not much more than a pair of fairly strong legs and lungs. I write mm-hmm. about how we evolved as humans to become bipedal and to walk mm-hmm. and then to run and um, how our bodies are designed specifically for that with a head that doesn't flop around as we run and uh, lungs that can breathe um, over long distances Um, so running, um, swimming for sure. Um, it's interesting. I learned about swimming that it hadn't been an Olympic sport back in antiquity, which kind of surprised me. I mean, I guess I, if I'd really thought about it, I would have, I would have known, but, um, 
yeah, the Olympics and the other athletic games were confined to track and field events like mm-hmm. marathon and sprint and runs. And then, you know, sports like boxing, wrestling, pancreation, but mm-hmm. there were no swimming events in the early Olympic games. And I think one of the reasons was that swimming was considered a practical skill that everyone should know Mm -hmm. um, in order to save your own life, to save Mm -hmm. yourself from drowning. And we're talking about Greece, which is on the Mediterranean. So it makes sense that um, men, women, and children alike would need to learn how to swim just to save their own lives. Or earlier in time, swimming for survival to get food, to get fish, to swim to the uh, other side um, to escape a warring tribe or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But swimming was not considered an athletic event or form of exercise. For me personally, swimming has become probably the most important form of exercise. I, I love to swim and that's been, you know, fairly new in my life. Mm -hmm. I used to be much more of a gym rat um, lifting for, gosh, hour and a half, two hours at a time, five days a week. <laughs> but eventually the injuries started to take their toll. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I started to mix it up. And I think the first thing I mixed it up with, other than running, was uh, yoga, which I began to practice at my gym with a great teacher, and uh, and then got into swimming because my late partner, the author Oliver Sacks, was himself a great swimmer, open water swimmer and lap swimming. And uh, he swam two or three times a week. So I started swimming with him. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mentioned in one of my emails to you that I was getting back into swimming as well. And what I didn't mention was um, as, you know, part of my job. We are running a program for our community where 16 women are part of a swim program. It's a, you know, taking your swimming to the next level because we recognize that it was something that everyone wanted to do, but had different levels of comfort and access Mm -hmm. to a pool. So for the past month or so, we've been partnering with a a gym and doing weekly swim team uh, (laughs) practices where we're all in the pool together. We're all at different levels and we're split up you know, based on what our goals are. And I, I grew up swimming and I, you did too. You said your father sort of helped ensure that you were, you're swimming frequently and well. Um, but I quit after high school and I can just hear my parents laughing at me in my head as I swim laps. Cause they're like, you're going to come back to this. I know it. You are ah. going to love it as soon as you, um, you know, turn 30 essentially. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> You did know, (laughs) but I just wanted to give us, you know, five minutes to gush about swimming and why we think people should try it here. I really do too. I encourage people. Um, It's also true that swimming is a complex motor skill. And unlike other exercises, like let's say walking or running, it can really take time to refine your stroke. It takes patience. I've certainly had friends who say, I've always wanted to swim or get back to swimming. And they tried a couple of times and just get really frustrated because the mm-hmm. truth is swimming is very strenuous. It's strenuous in different ways from running and other forms of exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also really urge people, it's like your great program you're talking about. If you know how to swim, but maybe want to refine your stroke or your technique, take a few lessons. There's no mm-hmm. shame in that. Take a few lessons with a swim coach who can help you 
improve your stroke and make it mm-hmm. more fun. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the biggest mistakes, I guess is the right word, that people make when they first start swimming seriously is over kicking, kicking really hard to keep themselves afloat and to keep mm-hmm. themselves moving forward and mm-hmm. learning to kick in an efficient way that doesn't completely wear you out after two laps is, um, yeah. is part of the practice. But just with a few tips, you can start to learn um, pretty quickly how to swim efficiently and really enjoy it. There, there are two other things that come to mind too when when learning to swim. And one I think is that the challenge is also learning to to trust your body and to control your breath and to you know not panic at the thought of having your face in water for seconds at a time. And that sort of leads hand in hand to like one of my favorite things about swimming is like the forced meditative aspect. You know, I don't have the fancy Bluetooth headphones where you can listen to music. It is just me and my thoughts counting strokes. And I think between that mental stillness and then the physical, you know, strenuous aspect of swimming, like you leave the pool just feeling like drained in the best way. I I totally agree. And, you know, we live our lives so much online, digitally with our phones. I sure hope they never invent a phone that's waterproof that people can be texting while they're doing the breaststroke or something. Um, I love that peacefulness in the water. And yeah, and the sense of purpose you get, you know, even on those days when I kind of dread the walk to the pool, my pool's about 20 minute walk away, mm-hmm. although it's a beautiful pool, um, to then be walking home and feel like, man, I, I just swam a mile or I just yeah. swam a half a mile. Yeah. It's a, it gives you a sense of purpose and just um, satisfaction that I think is so good for you mentally as well. Um, so I'm a big fan of swimming, but you know I also tell people try different forms of exercise. Maybe swimming mm-hmm. isn't your thing. Maybe you like to dance in your apartment for 15 mm-hmm. minutes, and that mm-hmm. is all good. <laughs> um, or play with your kids in the park and, mm-hmm. and think of that as swimming. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be. And I think that's what Alice Waters was sort of trying to point out. It doesn't have to be separated out into this other thing that feels like work. Um, it should be pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great quote from um, Galen, who, like Hippocrates, wrote a lot about exercise. Mm-hmm. He was a little later, second century AD. And he said, uh, he was a physician as well. In my opinion, the best exercises of all are those which are able not only to exert the body, but also delight the soul. Oh, I love that. I, lo- I love that because I think, you know, exercise should give you some joy. Mm-hmm. And um, although we, of course, have indisputable scientific evidence that exercise improves your health, extends lifespan, um, you never know what's going to happen. So I just say to people, don't exercise only because you think it'll make you live longer or even lose weight necessarily, but for how exercise makes you feel now, right now, in your body, about your body, about your life. You know, throughout your book, it's peppered with these personal stories and chapters about all the different types of exercise that you tried throughout this book. So to that end, besides swimming, what else did you find delighted you? Was there anything that didn't make it into the book that you tried or anything that really surprised you that you were like, oh, I did not think I would like this? That's a great question. I do um, write about walking, running, swimming. Um, 
boxing, which I'll talk about. <laughs> I even got certified, <clears throat> excuse me, as a uh, personal fitness trainer just to learn what personal mm-hmm. fitness trainers have to learn. It was really, really challenging. It is. It's a tough, I've done it too. It's a tough course. A lot of muscles, a lot of muscles. A lot of memorization of muscles. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. It's like first year med school almost. <laughs> um, the toughest was boxing because yeah. I did a six week boxing boot camp, uh, five days a week, 6 a.m. And it was no, walk in the park. It was, no. I'd always been curious about it, but I think rather naive, um, thinking that I'd get a chance to, you know, hit someone, do some sparring, but I didn't really think about the fact that I would get hit mm-hmm. and, get, and yeah. I would get hit hard. No, we're always the heroes of our own story. We're, we're the ones doling out the punches in our minds. Yeah. <laughs> of course we had padding and guards, so mm-hmm. I wasn't ever seriously hurt, but it was scary as hell to be in the ring with someone who was a lot better boxer who mm-hmm. could just knock you out, not mm-hmm. unconscious, but knock you down with a punch. Um, but there were a lot of lessons to be learned from that experience. You know, just the lesson of really staying in the moment, mm-hmm. literally staying in the fight, staying mm-hmm. in your body. I found that defending myself was harder <laughs> than hitting. <laughs> And there's a kind of beautiful, if that's not too strange of a word, a beautiful choreography to dancing yeah. that really actually made me respect um, great boxers as well. Yeah, you couldn't have known I think known the this. only thing that didn't, didn't make it into the book, I did try, I was no expert, but I did try some martial arts, oh. like Taekwondo and mm-hmm. basics, but I just didn't get far enough into it to mm-hmm. really experience it the way I would have mm-hmm. liked. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one that I did dip my toes into, but didn't really write about. Mm-hmm. I have also dabbled in boxing and there's a, a trainer here in Chicago that I'll spar with once or twice a month, but yours sounded much more intense in that with my trainer, she's, you know, holding the mitts and I know what she's going to do every yeah. single time. Like I know we're, we're running combinations. There was one time where she was like, well, let's, why don't we just try and see if you can hit me? And I was like, yeah, I've been doing this for a while. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> I, I, I did not land anything. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. And um, but I, one of the things that I remember about your chapter on boxing is that you spoke of at the end of it reaching like a state of flow almost. Yeah. Um, and I just thought that was a really beautiful description and uh, speaks again to, you know, I guess a recurring theme in, in our conversation at least is the pairing of like the physical with the mental and, you know, how the exercise is not necessarily just for your body. Yeah. You have to get past that point where you're overthinking it, Mm -hmm. you know, overthinking every move. And we could be talking about swimming too, because if you're, you know, trying to perfect your stroke and do 50 laps or whatever, there's a way in which you can overthink it and get very self-conscious about it. Mm-hmm. And once you practice enough, and it does take practice, whether boxing or swimming, and you're not even thinking about what you're doing, it's just pure muscle memory, then it definitely sort of goes into the category of joy, of delighting the soul. And mm-hmm. um, that's such a great feeling. Mm-hmm. To bring it back to you know the historical perspective a little bit, One of the things that I think about when I think about the gym today is, you know, it's status as the the third place in our lives, right? It's not work. It's not home. It's where we go to work out, but more so 
to hang out for in a lot of cases. And right. to what extent was was that present back in ancient Greek times that Mercuriale was writing about? I think absolutely. I mean, they were considered places where philosophers, thinkers gathered to talk and debate and discuss. Um, and there were even spaces just for that at the gymnasiums. Um, one of my favorite things I learned about Plato, I was so surprised, his given name was Aristocles, but he was a competitive wrestler as a young man. He competed at the equivalent of the Olympic Games at a place called Isthmia, which I visited. Mm -hmm. I went to Greece, um, mm -hmm. the last chapter of the book, and visited the four sites of athletic games. Um, Plato was uh, must have been a pretty good wrestler. He was also very broad-shouldered, and his wrestling coach nicknamed him Plato from the word Platon, which means broad-shouldered. Never knew that. Yeah, I love that. So he had um, he had lots to say about exercise, including the importance of moderation. Because I, I mean, I'm guessing here, but that he probably suffered injuries from overdoing mm -hmm. it. Um, mm -hmm. Wrestling and boxing, of course, that would happen pretty frequently. But he really preached um, moderation and um, working it into your daily life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned your pilgrimage almost to the four Olympic sites. And, you know, that's the chapter that I literally just finished this morning. So it's it's fresh on the top of my mind too. And especially since the Olympics are, are kicking off this week oh, as yeah. we're recording. Um, tell me about what that, that trip was like for you and make your best guess as to what the ancient Greeks would think about our exercises today that qualify for Olympic games or what Mercuriale would say this reflects about the culture of exercise. Just you get to get up on your soapbox and hypothesize with abandon. <laughs> I think they would be so amazed. First of all, that women yeah. are allowed to be athletes and to exercise. Mm -hmm. That would, that would shock them, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and the winter sports, I think, would be especially surprising. There were no winter sports in Greece, I'm guessing. No. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, you know, running events, track and field, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think about things like skateboarding and how extreme sports have come into the Olympics mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, makes them really fun. Mm -hmm. But a few years ago, uh, they were considering dropping wrestling from the Olympic Games because it just has is it's not as popular as it used to be and it's more niche than yeah and, yeah and it's not as much of a spectacle sport i guess and uh that would have been really shocking because wrestling and boxing were certainly among the most popular events at the olympic games back in antiquity yeah but yeah that that um trip to greece was incredible i felt in some ways like I had to do it for Mercuriali. Mm -hmm. Here was this physician who wrote this book, really drawing upon the ancient Greek and Roman writers and idealizing the Olympic Games and that whole culture. But he never went to Greece. And um, I thought, I've got to make this trip. So I rented a car and drove around the whole island and got lost a hundred times. And, uh, Relatable, as honestly. <laughs> as I tried to find... Um, Isthmia, the, the four sites were Isthmia, Nemea, Delphi, and Olympia. Which most people probably don't know that there are four sites. They really don't. You know, games. it's one of the re one of the reasons that the Olympics were and are 
well, were held every four years is because there were three other equally important athletic competitions in Mm -hmm. other cities, Delphi, Nemea, and Ismia. And then scores of sort of minor competitions leading up to those bigger games. Um, But yeah, Olympia, the site there was really beautiful and really Mm -hmm. well-preserved and excavated. Delphi was for sure the most spectacular, built into a mountainside, just the most breathtaking setting. Ismia hasn't quite been excavated to the same extent, um, but even so I had to make my little pilgrimage there because I knew that Plato had had competed at Ismia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have to wrap it up here in a couple of minutes. So let, let's leave off with a question about, you know, what, what sort of has stuck with you now when you go back to the gym, if you go back to your original stair stepper machine, what are you seeing and what are you thinking about with all of this context that you've discovered and and written about now? You know, I think one of the most important thing is um, I was surprised to learn that indisputable scientific evidence for the benefits of exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You speak about the history of exercise science. Yeah. Yeah. Relatively recently, it wasn't until the 1950s that they began doing large scale studies on the benefits of exercise. I think it's something we almost take for granted now. But um, I really, I think the takeaway for me was this idea of really enjoying it in the moment. It shouldn't be torturous. It shouldn't be agonizing. If it is, try a different form of exercise and, um, and really think about it. You know, one thing I say is try to learn something new every time you exercise. Mm-hmm. And it can be the smallest thing, just a little little adjustment to your freestyle stroke or a little adjustment to the way you run or that extra effort that allows you to achieve that yoga pose you've been wanting to achieve for a long time. So I think just setting that time aside, appreciating what your body can do while it still can and uh, finding some delight and some joy in exercise. Bill, thank you so much for being a guest on We Got Goals today. I'm so excited to share this interview and in the meantime, where can our listeners find your book? Where can they connect with you? This is your your moment of shameless self-promotion. <laughs> um, my book, Sweat, A History of Exercise, available wherever books are sold. So online booksellers like Amazon and Barnes & Noble, but also your independent bookstores should have the book. Um, I've got a bunch of other books, um, a memoir called Insomniac City, a collection of my street photography, um, again, available at most bookstores. And I have a website, billhayes.com, and you can learn about my other books and my photography. I'm on Instagram. Please come follow me. Uh, my Instagram name is Bill Hayes Photography, and I'm on Twitter at Bill Hayes NYC. And those, those are on my um, website as well, so you can find that info there. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. We will link to all of that in our show notes as well to make it even easier and Bill, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you. It was really fun. This has been another episode of We Got Goals, an AsweatLife.com production, and another thing that is better with friends. Thanks to Ryan Deffitt for editing the audio and Ryan Barayuga for editing the video that you can find on YouTube. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, our title is hashtag We Got Goals. Yes, the hashtag. Make sure to rate and subscribe so that other people can find out about us and follow us on all social platforms at A Sweat Life.